0: Welcome to the Buy Box Bandits podcast.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Buy Box Bandits podcast. Today, we have another amazing repeat guest, Chris Potter, who joined us back in September. You guys love that episode, talking about his story, doing up to 13 million in one year with Amazon Dropshipping, kind of trying out every single business model. If you haven't checked out that one, definitely check it out again. We're excited to have... Chris on to jam on some more um, topics in terms about what he's currently up to, mistakes Amazon sellers are making. You've been dropping a lot of game on the the Twitter timeline as well, so thanks for joining us.
0: Yes, welcome to be back. The The first episode went over really well. We've heard uh, a lot of good things from a lot of people and excited to be back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just for people who haven't listened to the first one, could you give like the minute or two long background story in terms of how you got to where you are today?
0: Only one or two minutes, huh? That's all I get. (laughs) (laughs) You got 40 on the last one, though. Yeah, Yeah. I got like 40 on the last one. So uh, yeah, the the basic background is I started back in 2005 selling on eBay part-time. I transitioned into Amazon 2008 full-time, and I was basically an Amazon seller from 2008 all the way to 2020. So we're talking about 12 years-ish at its peak. I was at $13 million in sales. I did pretty much every business model between retail arbitrage, online arbitrage, drop shipping, private label, wholesale, you name it, I did it. And I also had low websites as well. Another one, I don't know if I mentioned the last one, is I also owned a blog design business at one point. I bought it and resold that. And then I also had a paid uh, Amazon group as well for sellers that were over 100000 and we were up to about, uh, I think about 300 members that speak for that one. So those are a few other nuggets. If you didn't listen to the first episode, I don't think I mentioned those in the first one. And then in 2020, I exited Amazon. I purchased two tax two tax businesses in 2020. We have 47 offices between Virginia and North Carolina. And over this last uh, off season here, we started doing bookkeeping and CFO and taxes specifically for e-commerce businesses is what we're working on now. So that kind of Hopefully, it's between one and two minutes there. There you go. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I, think, I think where we kind of wanted to start on this episode was getting into detail about some of the more nuanced, advanced, OA-specific strategies, specifically um, getting going with order cancellations, right? That's going to be the big buzzword, buzz topic. When we're starting to talk about OA at scale, right? How to get around, if it's possible, some of those sites that start canceling you off the rip with no mm-hmm. sort of explanation warning, that sort of thing. So kind of let's dig into that and go from there.
0: Yeah. So when you have cancellations, what you really have to put yourself in the mind of is the actual people on the other side, because there's, there's people and systems on the other side that are doing these cancellations. And so really what your goal is, is to think about why would they cancel in the first place? In most cases, it's not because they just want to be jerks. <laughs> uh, in a lot of cases, it's also not because they don't want resellers. I mean, In some, some cases, yes, they don't want resellers. But in a lot of cases, the reason why they're canceling it is because it's fraud. That's what they think it is. They think it's fraud. And so really the key is is to think about what would trigger it to be fraud in the first place. And there's lots of things that could, that could go into this. It could be maybe the addresses don't match. Maybe the transaction amount is just way too large. Maybe the IP address didn't match where it's being shipped to. There's a litany of different things it could be. And the issue is, is that a lot of times you just don't know what caused it. In a lot of cases, the ridiculously big orders make a lot of sense because if you, let's say you're a smaller website that normally only sees orders come in on a daily basis for $50, $100, maybe $500 max, and you come throw in a $5,000 order, (laughs) they're immediately going to look at this and be like, uh, I don't think so, buddy. And they're just going to cancel the order because it makes no sense. So you really have to put yourself in the shoes of whatever website it is that you're, that you're going to. And obviously much bigger websites like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, which I know is closing down now, or you know some of those larger operations, they have probably entire departments of people who look at this stuff. They probably have their own internal rules that specifically say, if X does this, if Y does this, if Z does this, cancel the order automatically. And a lot of these bigger sites have those sorts of systems. And there's even software and companies out there that actually sell this software to these bigger companies with all these various integral rules that they can actually set internally. So your whole goal is basically to figure out what are those internal rules for that specific supplier and try to make the order look as organic as possible to fit within the rules they're expecting. And so that's kind of the the general basics of the background of what you have to kind of think about initially. And I'm sure you guys have seen this different, you know, differing rules no matter what website you go to, right? Yep. Uh, and yep.
1: it's all it's all kind of like anything. It's an exploratory process. What I mm-hmm. always recommend to people is standardize PayPal and credit card through PayPal, because we also want security on, on our end, obviously, not just the website. And then you have the the you're spending the bank's money if you're using the credit card, just even if you backing up with cash, obviously. Ideally. And, um, and then PayPal for added security, just because if a website takes PayPal, they, it's going to be pretty hard for them to scam you just on that side. So I standardize that. Are you typically, is that what you, uh, direction you like to go
0: with as well? So uh, let me, let me touch base really quickly on the PayPal thing. And, uh, I agree that I agree with exactly what you're saying. Is that is one method to kind of get around it because PayPal is a trusted bank source yeah. for many websites. So what you're doing is you're just adding on a layer of trust by doing that. Uh, now, from a bookkeeping it's perspective, it's a bookkeeping uh, so I'm nightmare. Gonna right? Touch this. I'm going to touch ah, this from a bookkeeping's perspective because you know we're bookkeepers by trade. One thing to keep in mind is that if you're going to do this, please create a separate PayPal account specifically for doing this, oh, yeah. separate from any sort of other inbound transactions or outbound transactions. Because from a bookkeeping perspective, what happens is, is that let's say, for example, you're using PayPal and pushing it through to your credit card. So when you import the transactions from a credit card, it shows PayPal and then puts the actual vendor of who you bought it from. And then in PayPal, there'll be two different transactions associated with that same transaction, one for when it goes out to the person you sold, you know, you bought it from, and then actually where it pulls in from the bank account. So for every single time that you actually do one of these transactions, you're actually doing three separate transactions internally that go into the books. And so what we usually recommend, at least for our clients, if they're doing this, is create a separate PayPal account. We effectively just ignore that PayPal account because there's no money that ever comes in or out of there. It's basically comes in and out for every transaction on the credit card. And so if you actually just set that PayPal account specifically for that reason, we can just ignore that PayPal account and act like it doesn't even exist. And that way, when we have transactions come out on the credit card, we mark them up for a supplier's at, and you're good to go. And then you have a secondary PayPal account where you have like inbound transactions if you're doing like... Uh, you know, Facebook groups or whatever. And then we have outbound payments that are not associated with this, utilize the other account that way, that way we hook up that account with, with your books. And then that makes things a lot cleaner uh, for anyone that's doing books. And believe me, if you commingle uh, those accounts and we have to sort through all that stuff, it's going to cost you a significantly amount more money, no matter who's doing your books, to actually clean it up and do that. Plus if you're doing it yourself, it's just going to cost a lot more time to try and match all those things up because it is a relative nightmare. Uh, so yeah, the, so, sorry for sidetracking that answer, but no, said that I was like, this is a problem that I know we see a lot. So uh, that's why I kind of wanted to address that right away. All right. So back to the original question was, how do we actually attack the payment structure and things like that? So, you know, we, we would use PayPal in some circumstances. That really wasn't a, a big method we used. We we realistically used virtual credit cards in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And so you know that there's there's various uh, ways that you can do virtual credit cards through uh, various websites to do that with. I mean, there's credit cards on their own that have the ability to do virtual credit cards now. I believe, you know, uh, Capital One, I believe, is one of them that has the ability to do that, where you no, just put I mean, one on their virtual credit card, get into one, you're good to go. So we would actually use vir- virtual credit cards that are specifically tied to specific websites, which uh, there's a couple of reasons why we would do that. Number just, one, if we tie it to the website, then we know that if it's used somewhere else, we know that website is causing some problems for us because they're sharing the, they're sharing a the credit card order hacked or something. So that's one reason to do it. Number two is if we continuously use that same credit card on reorders, it makes it a lot simpler for those yeah. type of issues. So not to mention, the last thing too is on those virtual credit cards, most of the time you can put any address you want for the billing address. You don't necessarily need to use your billing address on those virtual ones. And so that's kind of the the thing that we saw in a lot of cases too, is it allows us to put different billing addresses. Because there were some cases where we would see some suppliers that once you place like two or three orders, they start canceling every order. And the only way around that was to have different billing addresses for every order that we placed. And that's, that's one of the ways we kind of went around that.
2: Now, so for context, so that is something that you guys need to be careful of because nowadays in the authenticity age of Amazon, especially with ship uh, prep centers, that billing address is typically one of the standards that you can use and tell Amazon that says, okay, this is my billing address. I know the shipping address isn't associated with my Amazon account, but usually that billing address is your saving grace. So just bear in mind if you start switching the billing address, you open up a whole nother sort of a Absolutely good point. there. Absolutely um, good point.
0: In, in, our, in our case, because we were doing drop shipping, we were shipping it, to, we were basically using the billing address as the same shipping address the person right, of course. to. So yep. in our case, it wasn't an issue but you're absolutely 100% right that if you're going to switch around billing addresses really it is good for a prep center because you can make the billing address and the shipping address whatever the actual address is and obviously if you're doing some other you know advanced strategies where like if you have a if you have a supplier that just won't ship to the address anymore because it's been shipped too many times and you're starting to like you know spin up some of these UPS store locations to ship stuff to and you have a guy going around to all the UPS stores and picking the stuff up then you can have the billing address and shipping address be exactly the same and that's another strategy we used to use is when you have a supplier that just literally won't ship to an address anymore because there's too many orders shipped to it which we see that with prep centers at times mm-hmm. we literally would just find any ups store or uh, Postnet or post Annex, all those places that have those, those virtual mailbox addresses and we would just get multiple mailbox addresses at different locations they're kind of nearby wherever it's being shipped to and then we'd just ship them to those addresses, and then we'd have a person go around and pick them all up.
2: <laughs> now, continuing on the out. theme of uh, virtual credit cards and checking out and those sorts of things, when we start talking about having potentially VAs purchase for us, would that be the
0: the best method to do so? as virtual credit cards? Absolutely, yeah. We we would have we would have uh, VAs place orders for us. That's I, I I wouldn't place orders. It was all VAs that placed all the orders for us. So. Yeah, that was a system we had. Was credit cards was one way to do it, and then we can also kind of tie a specific credit card numbers to the actual person who's placing orders. So then, when you also know if they're doing any sort of funky stuff, you can immediately figure out that's happening. Because as soon as you introduce other people placing orders or spending money in your accounts, you have to start watching your accounts like a hawk. And when you watch your accounts like a hawk, you have to make sure everything matches. And that's one way of doing that
1: yeah we were together with a bunch of our friends this weekend and we were all checking out this bolo and one of our friends is like really into vas and we were all checking out and he was he's like not into oa as much and he was talking to his va on the phone and he was like hey jimmy like what are we actually buying like what's the coupon code and he just refuses to do the orders himself but he he was he was on his his on his uh on the phone with his his va over the scenes while everyone was checking out which is uh talking. So how else in terms of just giving up control? Cause that's something I'll, I definitely struggle with like delegation and all that. Um, like, did that come natural to you, or was that kind of just something like having more experience that you just kind of had to do eventually, if you wanted to keep growing? or did that, was that like a natural thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think everyone has that natural inclination of, Oh crap. I don't want to hand someone a credit card. <laughs> no. I mean, I think everyone runs into that. And even myself, I had that same problem when I was younger too. Uh, One thing to keep in mind is that when I started my Amazon business, I actually was already in a leadership role in uh, working at Best Buy. Actually, I started working at Best Buy when I was 16 years old. I worked there for 12 years. And I started as a cashier and I worked my way up to assistant manager of of Best Buy. So uh, what happened was over time, I started getting accustomed to delegating things and having people do things Mm -hmm. and following up with them and those sorts of things. So when I actually started my Amazon business, I was already in the mode of delegation because that was already what I was doing in my day job. And so it wasn't that difficult for me to do it. Now the control aspect, as far as finances, absolutely. That was <laughs> that was one of the things where I'm like, I don't know if I really want to do this, but it does become a point in time where you just have to give control over to people. And now at this point, like I, I personally don't have a problem with giving control up to other people as long as I have some sort of system behind it to verify that there aren't going to be any shenanigans on the background. And so that, that's really the key that if you're going to start re- releasing any sort of control to people specifically with finances, you just have to make sure there's some sort of back-end process to verify of what they're doing. And so what that may look like is on the OA order, if you're having to place OA or, orders for you, you basically, and this has to this be you or it can be someone else. And as long as you don't have like one, one thing we saw in, in our operations, we would have you know, we have order placers then we had people who would actually verify the information done and they had no communication between between the two people so that way they, they couldn't really collude between each other so yeah. that was kind of like one one layer of added protection we had is that you know people place orders they would put them into and we had a system that did this but you know in your case a lot of you're not gonna have software to do this so you probably just log them into an excel spreadsheet and then your person who actually controls it on the back end they're then verifying the credit card transaction along with the order that's on the spreadsheet, and as long as there's no, you know, orders that pop up on the credit card that aren't on the spreadsheet, and they perfectly align, then you're good to go. It's, and, but then when you see a, another ch- charge on it that doesn't actually align up, that's when you run into a problem. And this particular issue reminds me of a an issue that we ran into when I actually merged a comp, I actually merged my company with our dropshipping company at one point. And when we did this, there was, uh, we both had very big teams and we had two totally different operations as far as how we internally operated it. And so we had the these two teams together and we had to figure out who was going to do what processes and all this other good stuff. And this took months to do this. Well, within that time span of a few months, one of the things we didn't have control of was th- that this process we just talked about. We didn't have a process in place to actually follow and everything. And oddly enough, that was a perfect opportunity for you both steal from us. <laughs> And we actually had about $300,000 stolen from us during that time, span, because we didn't have the proper checks and balances in the background. And then by the time we actually figured it out, like once we started, you know, once we kind of caught up, we had all this stuff going on at the same time. Like we're still trying to operate two businesses and then merge everything together and trying to figure out who does what and all this other good stuff. And uh, it was just an issue. And once we finally got caught up, we saw the problem and we're like, Holy crap. And we had to like start, you know, basically plugging all these holes and saying, all right, we're limiting access to this. And then we started slowly giving access back once we knew we had uh control systems behind it. But uh, most things we the just mansion.
1: have to make sure. someone's okay. on a mansion in the in uh, the Philippines.
0: Yeah, like if you're kind of inter- if you're kind of wondering like how it occurred, uh we actually utilized gift cards for purchases in a lot of our cases. And our software just wasn't logging the things properly. And that was one problem we had wasn't logging things properly. And then we our person was supposed to be checking it wasn't checking it either. And basically what they were doing is they were placing orders on on websites, having stuff shipped to a a freight forwarder address. So it actually was a US address being shipped to So they didn't necessarily raise a red flag on that. end. And that was just forwarding the the products over to uh, the Philippines. So we saw them uh, buy a ton of stuff, literally about $300 of the stuff by the time we added it all up that they had shipped out uh, that we lost. Damn. And so that's it's, one it's, way to do it. They waited, they waited They waited and they struck when the time was right, unfortunately. And it's crazy because like it's not like, you know we had those systems in place beforehand and it's just that they have to be at this sliver of time that they could have done it. And they, they're like, oh, let's go, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, crazy. That's now. funny. Your craziness. It's like we uh,
2: planned all these segues, though, without this throughout this episode. Because the next topic you want to get into is, is the gift cards, which is a big thing in 2022. Yeah, yeah. G and I got into the game,
1: man. Yeah, the past couple of weeks. Yeah.
2: So we've been doing them heavy, heavy, heavy. Yep. Um, so talk us through gift card strategy from a practicality standpoint, but also as a bookkeeping perspective. What are some of the tips and tricks that you would you
0: would provide the listeners in that space? Yeah, so we we used to buy a ton of gift cards. I think that uh, in the year we did thirteen million dollars in sales, we probably bought probably three to four million dollars of the gift cards, if not more. And so we were very, very, very heavy buyers of gift cards. So I'm very familiar with this. And you know, there are some there. There's obviously the biggest thing is that it's increasing your margins. That's obviously number one. And which is the reason why you do it in the first place. Otherwise, because it does add more complexity is what it does. And basically the way it boils down to is that when you're buying them, you have to make sure that A, you're buying them from reputable sources because there are lots of places that say, I'm going to offer you 25% or 30% discount when everywhere else you look to is only offering six or 8%. That right there should potentially raise a red flag. And you definitely should be finding out how they're buying them. Now, there might be legitimate reasons why they're doing this, but if they're getting any sort of volume at that number that's significantly higher than any other place you look, I would be very questionable about how they're getting them. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of people want their money with stolen credit cards with gift cards. That's how they do it. And then they attempt to run it through crypto or other methods to conceal their identity. And the issue with this is is that there's two issues with it. Number one, if the gift cards, if the suppliers you're buying things from have gift cards and they find out they're off stolen credit cards, they're just going to wipe the balances off these credit cards to begin with. And then later on, if if let's say, for example, they don't find out right away, you've already used the gift cards. Later on down the road, if they end up finding out, all right, well, this credit card was associated with fraudulent activity, then they might associate you with fraudulent activity, even though you weren't the one who actually did the fraudulent activity. Right. And that might flag you as a buyer in the future. So if you have a, like a great supplier you're buying from and you're using gift cards all the time and they're cool with it, if they end up finding out the bunch where you credit, stolen credit you know, gift cards, now that great <laughs> symbiosis you have with shipping to your prep center now might cause a problem because it might just totally flag the address now, which not only causes a problem for you, but every other person at an address too. So that's part of the problem. And then the other thing is, is that I've mentioned this on Twitter at one point that which you know is a little bit uh you know uh, exaggerated is that if it is a money laundering scheme theoretically you could also be uh, caught for uh, money laundering accessory now the reality of that happening is probably pretty little however the, what typically happens you know think about when you have these big criminals how they find them right they find them through taxes <laughs> and so if for example you were to get caught up in the mo- money laundering type thing which you had nothing to do with it's entirely possible that if it's Considered stolen credit cards, then they then the IRS could actually say, "Well, you can no longer deduct this because it's stolen." Because it's stolen, so now all of that inventory that you bought that was otherwise deductible at one point now can't be deducted. So now all that money that you spent on gift cards, you're not gonna pay taxes on all that money. So if you bought a million dollars of the gift cards and, you're, and you are at a twenty percent tax rate, you you now owe two hundred thousand dollars. So that's kind of the other reason why it would be very you know, judicious on where you're buying yourself from. Yeah. So, were your, oh yeah. Well, oh, go ahead. Yeah. What were your go-to spots like in
1: terms of getting gift cards from, because we've had a lot of success with gift card wiki, which is an aggregator for like mm-hmm. a lot of the different ones, but like, you know, the card cash, the raise, the rack to yep. the world, the mainstream ones.
0: Yeah. The mainstream ones is where we would normally buy most of our, our gift cards through, you know, just like you mentioned, raise card cash, uh, and Cardpool were actually our biggest three ones that we had. And we bought some other ones from the different ones, and we would use Gift Card Wiki, just like you mentioned, to find additional sources. But you know, when we had those sort of websites, we would do our due diligence. I would talk to them, find out how they're buying them, find out what they're doing if we try to find a new supplier. And obviously, if it's in the same range as what most of our sites are, you don't necessarily have to be as, like, uh, anal about it, mm-hmm. because more than likely, if they're kind of in the range of all the rest of where wherever what else is selling, they're probably not trying to just get rid of this stuff because it's hot <laughs> in that case there might be legitimate reasons why they're they're selling them uh so yeah good question on that
1: yeah i think uh like i was looking at that's actually a pretty good business model that card cash has like i think they've they were offering to buy my nike ones for like 12 percent or something or like 88 percent of value and then they flip it for like they they arbitrage like the seven percent That's yeah like that's that's an interesting thing. And especially- well, they also buy them
2: from the retail stores themselves. Don't they like at scale? Really? Like discount? I, they
1: might.
0: That's they a- they, they yeah. definitely might.
1: It never made sense to me. People giving gift cards for Christmas presents. Like it's just like so limiting what you could possibly get and stuff like that. It's a very world problem, but i never really made sense to me. And uh
2: and yeah, you got to wonder what, where at a macro scale, they get all this volume because there's millions of dollars of gift cards available. You
1: know, and the last thing on the credit card point, uh, everyone that's listening should get the Capital One Spark, the 2% cash back one. Like I was thinking about how insane, we like kept talking about it over the weekend, but you get 2% cash back and then they pay out so quick. So it's like the cash flow cycle is amazing like that too. I assume you're always really dialed in with your credit card strategy with that, Chris?
0: Yeah, so we used to use Spark just like just like you're referring to. I actually had two Spark cards. And there is actually another credit card you may or may not be familiar with. And it's uh it's actually a Bank of America card that they have that you can get actually up to 2.62% cash back. And the way it works is there's basically a, a cashback advantage card that they have that's one and a half percent cash back. That's the base value of it. If you have a Bank of America uh, checking account, mm-hmm. And or a Merrill Lynch account, and you basically add all your numbers up, and you typically have an average balance between the two of over a hundred thousand dollars. You get access to their what they call it's like premium, uh premium point club or something. And as part of the premium point club, they actually increase your bonus on, on all of your credit cards or Bank of America by 75%. So it takes that 1.5% cash back and it increases it 2.625 cash back, is what it increases it to. That's pretty about, wild. Yep. But again, you, you need oh, to yeah. have a hundred thousand dollars sitting in the Merrill Lynch account for, you know, you, you can, you, if you have like a Roth IRA or you have IRA accounts and you move them over to Merrill Lynch, that could be a way to uh, do the hundred thousand dollars. People don't necessarily have a hundred thousand dollars sitting around the bank account. That's one way of doing it. Sweet.
1: And which, yeah. uh, which was that a business card
0: or a personal one?
1: Yeah, it's a business card. Oh, yeah, I figured. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause I want to be on top of that and everything. Yep.
0: So, so that, that's a, that's the highest level cashback I've seen of any card that's out there. They used, used to be in the, I believe it's uh, Allegiant was another one for a while, but, but they, they don't run that one anymore. That one used to be 3% back in the day, but they, they don't offer it anymore.
1: Yeah, uh, and then the Chasing Premier, I think it's 2.5% for transactions over 5K. So that's pretty
0: gangster for people doing wholesale. I actually just got that card actually recently. Yeah. They, they have a really good sign-on bonus with it but i believe it is just two percent i think is, is well the oh
1: they might have changed that it was it's two point it 5, used to be two and a half over five over five they might have
0: nerfed it yeah yeah I, I think it's a little less than that but i did I actually yeah. did recently signed up for that card and yeah. it's you get, a, you get a massive bonus right up front so it's worth yeah. it just from the start plus it's a very good card i got i only got a forty thousand dollar limit on it and i don't even I and mean, I don't even sell anymore, so I still got, <laughs> yeah.
1: Million. Uh, I don't know why Did, I don't think we asked this last time, but what model would you do? We can just talk about it again. What model would you do if you had to start Amazon today?
0: Probably private label. Interesting.
1: Okay, yep. right, and it, well, assuming you know, that's honestly like I might do that if I if I had to start over, you know what I mean, and like I had to be, I'm not. Yeah. My roots are so deep in Iowa that I'm obviously not going
0: to right now. But well, what, that's, that's been the challenge for me too. Is that my I, I was so deep in the wholesale and buying all that, like you know, if you ask that question, and, and the reason why my answer is necessarily because I have that much background in it. It's because I, under, I fully understand the value of private label. So every dollar that you make in, in OA and wholesale generally is just, that's a dollar. That's all you're making out yeah. of it is a dollar. However, in private label, the more profit you make on private label, the more likely you are to be able to sell it for a multiple level, whatever that, that profit number is. So if you were to make, let's say, $100,000 in profit on OA, that's all you're getting. You get $100,000 and that's it. Whereas an exit for a private label product, if you're making 100 grand a year, you might be able to sell that now for 300 grand or 400 grand, and mm-hmm. so that 100,000 dollars of profit now is actually worth 400,000 dollars, even though you're not actually getting it now. So that's so if, at some point with OA, you're likely just going to quit. You're just not going to do it anymore at some point. Like and what so I whatever am. the day is, there's no no additional money once you stop. It's over. Whereas with private label, once you're ready to get out, you sell that sucker and you get three more years worth of money. <laughs> so that that's kind of the reason why I think private label is is the way I would go if I were to go back into it, is specifically for that reason. It has nothing to do with my specific knowledge base because my knowledge base is is very heavily skewed towards towards uh, wholesale and in a way. But I know long term that's kind of where I'd want to go because I would want to sell off and get and get the, the money from it because I understand it every dollar I make is actually worth $4 in that yeah. method versus every dollar I make in no way is only worth a dollar.
2: Yeah. yeah. But there's just, there's a incredibly higher amount of barrier of entry with the APL space.
0: Yeah. There's need a lot more knowledge. I mean, it's yeah. it really, really the skill set's totally different because generally your skill set for, for let's say online arbitrage, what you're basically doing is you're just finding supply gaps and you're just filling the supply gaps is all you're doing. You're just finding deals and doing supply gaps. And so if you're very good at finding those supply gaps, very good at understanding HIPAA charts, you can basically run a very good OA business. Whereas in private label, those things don't matter. (laughs) You are still trying to potentially fill a supply gap, but the reality in most cases, you're trying to actually create the supply. And yeah. that's, that's really the difference. You're trying to create the demand and, and, and fill supply with the band you're creating and totally different skill set. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Speaking yeah. of that, how is, uh, what's it like, how did your skill set translate or not translate largely going from
0: like the Amazon business to the franchise business? Uh, I mean, I would, I would say because I had a lot of background in doing marketing and understanding processes, procedures, understanding a lot of those sorts of things, those translate immensely to the other business. And not to mention because I had such a large scale business at one point, it allowed me to go seamless into this new business because I was used to managing 120 people when we had our, our, our dropship business. <laughs> and I, we, you know, we had teams of people, so we had different departments of people and, and Philippine managers that ran everything. So I had managers that did all this stuff. And when I bought these operations, we have, you know, at 47 locations, we have area managers, we have general managers, and basically it's the same general setup is I have managers in place. I work with the managers and the managers manage the people, which is the same thing I used to do. So that translation was, was pretty seamless. Obviously, the biggest challenge was that it's a totally different business model. I had to learn a franchise, had to understand how uh, the tax business worked because I didn't fully understand how that worked, and you know, because we're in a franchise system now you have all these rules and regulations you have to follow kind of like you have to follow with Amazon. And so you have to understand what those rules and regulations are. Just like with, your, with Amazon, you have to know what the rules are. It's the same thing with a franchise, but not only do I have to the franchise rules, I also have to know the IRS rules as well. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of uh, varying things I had to understand with that. But, you know, if you're translating what you're doing right now, let's say you just want to go out and buy another business, there's a lot of skills that can definitely translate, especially, you know, understanding market demand, understanding supply, uh, you know. Specifically, if you're looking at like Kiva graphs, that's one thing that can do well in the stock market because we understand graphs, and you start understanding what some of the graphs are in the stock market, that can definitely help as well. So a lot of things you do can definitely work in other businesses. It's just a matter of you know matching those skill sets. That's all. For
2: sure. Now b- back to your Amazon days, you had a very unique setup in terms of having tons of tons of Amazon accounts.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now this is sort of like a, a taboo subject to talk about. Me, My, Miles, and I get asked quite a bit in terms of wanting to set up separate accounts, how to go about that. Um, So not necessarily to get too much in the weeds of modern day Amazon TOS, but how did you operate that back in the day and how was it beneficial for
0: you? Yeah, so the main reason why we did that in the first place, let's go back to the reason why we did it, was that we had accounts getting suspended. Basically my account, my my first account ever got suspended, I think back in 2017 was actually the first time I ever had an account suspended. And it was I was dripping sweat. I was literally dripping sweat that first time because I, I I didn't know. I was like I was like God, I got suspended. We were suspended for almost three weeks because it was a sweep. There was and this used to happen. This might still happen now, but back in the day they would put some sort of thing in place, some sort of new new algorithm in place that would just sweep a bunch of accounts and suspend them all. And then as soon as that happened now you've got your, now their entire, their entire department of that handles this is now just flooded with people trying to get reinstated. So you wouldn't get responses for weeks. And in this case, it was three weeks when we finally got reinstated. And I actually submitted an appeal probably three days later, maybe two days later after I figured out what to do and submit the appeal. It literally took them three weeks to reply to my initial first one. They end up unsuspending me on my first try, yeah. but I was like sweating bullets. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. Not like I've got employees of pain and all this other good stuff. So that worried me initially. And then as time went on, you know, I did end up opening a second Amazon account for a different reason. It was actually to split my wholesale and OA business at the time. So I ended up having two accounts specifically for that reason. I opened the second account year, you know, eons before that. So I had nothing to do with suspensions or anything like that. However, that suspension kind of like alerted me. Okay, well, I need to start figuring out ways to make sure I'm I'm diversifying myself. So I have cash coming in, even if an account was to get suspended. So I started actually looking to buy other accounts because i knew that if i opened up more accounts especially these days they're doing verification with with the sellers they're actually doing video verification in some cases so it's not like i could just open up an account myself and so at the time i would just find people who were getting out of the business and i would buy their accounts and then we would transfer over to our llc and because we were buying accounts we had to have a different LLC for each different entity. We bought accounts, but so we effectively just treat treated as a separate business is what we did. We created a new bank account, create a new new entity. We basically create a, a VPS, which is a virtual. People don't under, know what a VPS is. It's different than a VPN. Everyone knows the VPN is in general. A VPS is effectively just a, a separate PC uh, instance that you're creating on a server somewhere. So there's all these different companies that have this ability. And all you're basically doing is just spinning up a new version of Windows and you do a remote desktop into that server and it allows you to just access Windows just as if you're doing that in your PC. And we would tie specific accounts to those VPSs. So anytime we logged into the main account, it was tied specifically to that VPS located in a specific location. That way there'd be no confusion on like me logging in here in North Carolina, and accidentally log into the wrong account and then they link the two accounts together. And so that was one way we did that is we tried to make sure that everything was clean as far as totally different entity, totally different location, totally different IP addresses, totally different MAC addresses, literally everything different. And once we did that, we just kept everyone separate that way. And once you create that main account, you can create secondary accounts on it. They're limited. And those are the ones that generally don't get flagged when you have them attached to the same addresses and so forth. Because the reality is that there's all these different service providers that need logins. And so Amazon, it would make no sense for Amazon to then start policing that, because yeah. how else would like me as a bookkeeper be able to have access to 10 different accounts if I needed to access your books, if, I, if there wasn't secondary access for that, or even a prep center is another example of two areas where you need access to the Amazon account, otherwise you can't do things. And there'd be no real way for Amazon to really do that. So we would create secondary accounts and that's what we would typically log into on a regular basis. And we just treat it like you know, treat like they're different businesses. It's the same thing that all these "quote unquote" legitimate uh, businesses that were doing automation services. Um, theoretically, this is the same thing they were doing. If you had, if you actually had someone who was actually legitimately trying to not scam you, that's how they would have done it. Is they would have done it that way. And there was someone I knew that actually did try to not scam people, and that's the process they used. They would, they basically treated all of these accounts as separate entities, which is what they were. And we just treat it that way. Now, the follow-up question to yeah. the
2: year or two seller in 2023 that just heard that spiel, is that something that you would still advise maybe one of your clients today?
0: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's difficult to manage. It's very difficult to manage. So it, it really would depend on the level of sophistication of the person you're talking to because one wrong slip up and you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, I always
1: tell people just like, I, I would, you know, if you do what you're supposed to do, like
2: all the rules, do, you what know, you do
1: there's a very, very minuscule chance over the long term, something bad that happened that will go on for an elongated period of time. Yeah. And I tell people just like, it's almost always like, if you're asking that question, like you shouldn't do it in the first place. You, you know, you know what I mean? There's that, like kind of a lot of stuff like that too. Um, but yeah. yeah, I definitely wouldn't, uh, wouldn't recommend that. Kind of to finish up here, Chris, we would love to uh, like, we love like reading your stuff on Twitter about bookkeeping and stuff, just more so just like staying organized as a seller. Like where are people messing up just off what you've seen? Like what are reports that are helpful metrics? Like you talked about last time, return on invested capital, which was cool. Mm-hmm. I know people like that on Twitter, that
0: post you had did that, did well on that too. Yeah. So but we can we basically since it's tax time I and mean, we're in January right now and the beginning guess is getting a release probably the next week or so so this is prime time for t- to talk taxes and talk bookkeeping that sort of thing. Now what I've seen a lot with people who are let's say just starting out, which is probably a good chunk of people who are listening to this podcast, and what we tend to see is that they either start right away and they don't keep track of their stuff at all, <laughs> or they then wise up a little bit and they get inventory lab. And then they come to me and say, I'm ready to do my taxes or I need bookkeeping. And this is what I have. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's talk a little bit here. And realistically, inventory lab in general is okay for tax purposes for let's say your first year. Once you start getting to your second year, third year, it becomes a problem because inventory lab is not perfect. It's not, it's not designed to be an accounting system which means that there's no way to verify the accuracy of it and the biggest problem with this is that there's human error that's introduced into that with no sort of back end to make sure that's actually accurate Let's think about it this way is that specifically the inventory library even seller boards another one every single time you you add an item you have to do what you have to enter the buy costs every single time imagine like you know, if you're doing something over and over again you're going to make mistakes especially when you start introducing like prep centers or VAs or multiple people entering by costs. You can see how this can really become error prone. And there's literally no double check anyone ever does to make sure their buy costs are right. And so that's problem number one. And the other number two is that they might not enter in all of their expenses into inventory lab or even keep track of an Excel spreadsheet or anything. And that's the other issue we see is that then you start missing deductions or again, like human error that they might m- transpose a number and put it wrong. All these various things you can think about are mostly due to human error or lack of motivation to even do it in the first place which is what we see a lot of too is that they come to us in january february knowing that tax time is coming up and they're like i need to get my stuff ready it's like well what have you done so far uh i'm like six months behind in entering by costs and entering in expenses it's like okay man you got some work to do <laughs> Uh, you know, and realistically, we can go back in time and actually clean things up, but it's costly. It's it's costly, and in a lot of cases, we when we have clients that are kind of within their first year uh, working on Amazon and they have Inventory Lab, we basically just tell them to update as best they possibly can Inventory Lab, and we'll we'll use that for taxes. Again, it's not going to be one hundred percent accurate. Again, for uh, audit purposes, it's a nightmare. If you ever get audited, it's not going to be fun because Inventory Lab won't. Align with what you've actually done, so it causes a problem for that purpose. But for someone that hasn't done numbers yet, name, I'm cognizant of, you know, first year store owners that it does not make sense to pay me or someone else three to five thousand dollars to clean up bookkeeping for a year when you're only making five thousand dollars. You know, why would you pay me that, that just clean hundred bucks? It, it's very difficult decision to make, and I've started businesses many times. And understand how difficult it is up front to even put out any sort of money up front when you have those sorts of issues so that's why i usually say first year stick with inventory lab and then once you kind of get to about 40 50 in, in revenue per month that's when it really makes, makes sense to to start looking at a bookkeeping solution whether it's us or someone else or even doing it yourself and that's kind of when it really makes sense and obviously if you have some sort of accounting background then starting with quickbooks or zero right from the start is a very good thing to do but you know if you don't have that background and you don't really want to put the time and effort into learning it. And that's the key is putting the time and effort into learning it. Because think of how much time you spent on learning how to do sourcing. Well, bookkeeping and accounting is even more difficult probably than sourcing if you want to do it properly. And a lot of times people just sign for QuickBooks, import the transactions, categorize some stuff. And they're like, oh, I'm done. Good to go. That's not how it works. <laughs> uh, and so that, that's that's probably the biggest problem we see with, with most new sellers, people who aren't uh, you know with accounting, that sort of thing. So um I, I'm not sure if I went off the rails as far as your original oh, question, but yeah, uh, no, you're good. you good. Know, I figured I'd just talk about some of the things we typically see from new sellers because that's you know it's that time of year. People are coming to me. i I'm literally booked out like for the next probably two weeks. I've been booked out since the beginning of this week just talking to people all day long about taxes and about bookkeeping and getting ready for taxes and that sort of thing. So you know <laughs> it's I'm hearing all day. Do,
1: we, do you have uh, VAs in the tax business too?
0: We do, yep. Cool.
1: Cool. Sweet. I, I figured you would have to, you know, obviously it's a different sort of business. I'm sure there's a, you know, what it sounds like hundreds of domestic employees as well, but I'm glad you got that. It, it's so interesting how outdated some people are and that like they could free up so much time or, or like they're overpaying so much for people like in office and stuff like that. And it's cool. I'm the trends only going to continue in terms of getting better in that regard with, uh, with VAs and stuff like that. But cool. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. That was fantastic. Once again, uh, we um, really appreciate it. And uh, anyone, check out the uh, the other episode as well we did with Chris back in September. Um, anything else we should talk on, Garrett?
2: No, go check
1: uh, Chris Powers' service out, bookkeeping taxes, the whole nine yards. He'll take care of you from on a financial well. perspective. A lot of good wisdom and, uh, and game on Twitter and all that. Sweet. All right, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you guys in the next one.
0: Thanks, guys.